invite you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. This is our text for this morning. Hear the word of the Lord through the Apostle Peter to the churches scattered, those who are pilgrims and exiles in a foreign land perhaps literally so, but also uh, in the spiritual sense as well. So hear the word of the Lord. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. May the Lord add his blessing to the hearing and understanding of his word. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word that you've given to us. We pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, help us to understand the scriptures which find their focus in the Lord Jesus Christ, that uh, our daily walk is one of being daily conformed to the shape of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are, as it were, blocks of marble, and your Holy Spirit is chipping away at those things that do not belong to the form of the Lord Jesus Christ in us. We pray that your word would have its place in our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. So once again, beloved, we return to the question of is the Reformation over? Or is it really over? I said no last week because of the material principle of the Reformation, the, specifically the doctrine of justification by faith. When we say material principle, we mean the, the issue that was in dispute between the Reformers and the Roman Catholic Church, in, in particular the Magisterium, the, the Pope in Rome, and his uh, curia, curia, as it's called, those who serve him. This week, we want to look at what is called the formal principle, that is, the thing that gives the shape to the Reformation. While we could think of it, if we stick with the metaphor that I've already been using even in the prayer of a statue, uh, that uh, the marble would be the material out of which the statue is made. That would be the material principle. Now we're looking at the formal principle. That is, we're looking at the chisel. What is used to 
make the Reformation what it is. And we say the formal principle, what we are talking about, beloved, is the rediscovery by God's providence of the scriptures. Involving in God's providence the invention of the printing press, involving an educational reform movement known as humanism, not to be confused with what we more recently have referred to as secular humanism, but humanism, which was a, an educational reform movement that said we need to get back to the primary sources, ancient documents. And of course, they were concerned with all sorts of things. But part of that was the rediscovery of the Bible in the original Greek and Hebrew. In the original languages, the formal principle of the Reformation. The Reformation was a scriptural movement of recovery. The expression that was uh, used was uh, in the Latin, ad fontes, back to the sources, back to the wellspring where the water gushes forth from the earth. The foundation of the Reformation in doctrine and life is God speaking in the scriptures. Not merely that God spoke in days gone by, but that God speaks still in the word. God continues to speak to us in the scriptures, and you'll find there in your bulletin the outline uh, for this morning's message uh, being drawn from this text that is we've just read from Second Peter 1, 16 to 21. The scripture is true. Scripture is more fully confirmed. Scripture is a shining lamp. Scripture was not produced by the will of man, and then finally, Scripture was produced by men carried along by the Holy Spirit. So let us go back to that first point. What does Peter say? He says that his message of the gospel of Jesus Christ was not a cleverly devised myth, or fairy tale, a fable, or pardon the expression, an old wives' tale. It is not that. The scriptures speak the truth. In fact, Peter goes on in particular in this passage, in this letter, uh, to, to point out that he himself was an eyewitness to the ministry of Jesus. In fact, you'll remember in the book of Acts that one of the the criteria for being an apostle, and remember they they had to replace uh, they had to replace uh, uh, Judas, who had committed suicide after being betraying our Lord, uh, and one of the criteria was that the man had to be an eyewitness of the ministry of Jesus, uh, culminating in his death and resurrection. Peter is saying here that the, the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, despite what the world would tell you, beloved, is not a cleverly devised myth, not made up. Peter himself was an eyewitness to the things that have been set down, in particular, in the gospels. 
And if history is right, the Gospel of Mark in particular reflects the insights of the Apostle Peter. John Mark, you may remember, uh, was a young man who uh, was involved uh, in the ministry of Jesus. Uh, uh, his mother, uh, her home served as a gathering place for the early church. John Mark, who was also a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul and got himself into trouble for, for uh, leaving them early and going back home. We don't know all the circumstances. We just know that Peter, Paul, and Barnabas parted company because of their disagreement over John Mark. That same John Mark was a disciple of the Apostle Peter. So Peter is not only an eyewitness, that eyewitness account, no doubt, uh, given uh, to John Mark, and, and John Mark sets it down, perhaps as the earliest gospel, we don't know. It's certainly the briefest one. Peter is an eyewitness not only to the ministry of Jesus in general, for three years, he is a, an eyewitness in particular to the transfiguration. When Jesus, for a brief time, revealed his resplendent heavenly glory. I pray that, that, uh, that as we read God's word, that we might capture a sense of that heavenly glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. We haven't seen the transfiguration with our own eyes. We are dependent upon the eyewitness testimony of the Apostle Peter, among others. But listen to what he says. If, if the gospel uh, is not true, that is, if it is a fable, a fairy tale, a myth, an old wives' tale, if that is true, if the events recorded in the Gospels, in the Scriptures, did not happen, and this would be true of all of the historical events that are narrated for us in the Bible, if the message revealed did not come from God, beloved, we are deceived, we are ourselves liars, and are, quite frankly, wasting our time. We would be no better than the Universalist Unitarians, Unitarian Universalists, who I often say, refer to as nothing Arians. They don't believe in, in, in the God, the triune God of the Bible. They don't believe in much, but they still show up for church. We don't want to be like that. But you see, beloved, the gospel is true and not a fable because the God who speaks it to us is himself the very essence of truth and faithfulness. God is the very standard of truth. Truth is not a standard to which God must conform. God himself is the standard of truth. The Father's voice came booming from heaven and spoke in the midst of the glory cloud on the Mount of Transfiguration. If you remember the, gospel, the various gospel accounts of the Mount of Transfig the Transfiguration uh, event, 
God spoke from, the Father spoke from heaven in the midst of the glory cloud, telling Peter, James, and John, this is the three of them who went up to the mount with Jesus, went up upon the mount, and the Father's voice not only spoke to Peter, James, and John and got them kind of uh, puzzled, acting a little strange, if you remember that, what Peter was saying, Lord, let us build tabernacles for you and Moses and Elijah, because Moses and Elijah show up talking with Jesus about what? His soon coming exodus, his departure. And the word in the Greek is exodus, which we have as the name of the second book of the Bible. The father says, this is my well-beloved son. Now, Peter doesn't say this, but uh, we are told uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration that Jesus is not only God's the father's well-beloved son, but that we ought to pay attention to him. We ought to pay attention to what Jesus says and does. And he tells us that God's word is true. He goes, he goes further and says it cannot be broken. It cannot be destroyed. Men have tried to destroy it, beloved. In the history of the church, the word of God has been mutilated, burned. It has been cut up. We even have an account in the Bible, in the prophet Jeremiah, of the wicked king of the northern kingdom of Israel, taking Jeremiah's prophecy and cutting it up with a penknife and throwing it in the, in the fire, thinking he could destroy it. Yeah, no such quote-unquote luck. So scripture is true. Do you believe that? The scriptures are true. But Peter goes on, he has more to say than that the scriptures are true. He also tells us that they are more fully confirmed. Peter goes further and he reminds us that scripture provides a more thoroughly confirmed word from God than even his eyewitness experience. As wonderful, as majestic as that experience was, and I'm sure many of you have thought, I would have really liked to have been there to see that, to see the transfiguration of Christ, so that we see some of his majestic glory, his heavenly glory poke through the curtain, as it were. Peter tells us here that, in fact, to possess the word of God is better than to undergo that experience that Peter experienced in the physical presence of the Lord Jesus Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. It's better to have God's word than to have experienced what Peter experienced. That's what he's saying. It is mind-blowing. Remember the first time uh, this was pointed out to me, and I'm going, what? Because if you're like me, you're also, when you read the account of the disciples on the road to Emmaus, when Jesus is uh, after the resurrection, he doesn't reveal to them who he is. 
He walks with them from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and oh, he tells them they're down and out because they, they're, 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 the man they thought was the Messiah has been crucified and taken down from the cross and laying in the tomb. And all their hopes and dreams that were invested in him have gone with the wind. And Jesus reminds them that the Messiah must undergo suffering and then enter into his glory. And then he points out to them that that reality, the suffering unto glory, is, is everywhere in the, New, in the Old Testament, in the Bible. The scriptures, every part of the scriptures, point and speak about the Lord Jesus Christ. What Peter says is that the scriptures, being the word of God, are the word of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that we ought to pay close attention to them. In fact, we ignore them to our peril, our spiritual peril. We cannot grow in grace. You wouldn't expect to grow physically if you didn't eat. Some of us, you notice, don't have a problem with that particular exercise. We, we know how to do that. But if we don't pay attention to Christ in his word, then it is like going without food continuously, day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, and you expect yourself to grow? Peter might say, grow up. There's no way you can grow without close attention to God's word. Beloved, when Peter wrote these words about having something more sure than his experience, that wonderful experience that he had on the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, we have the word. When he wrote that, they didn't have a complete New Testament. We do. So what Peter says is more true now is more so now than even when he wrote these words as he was himself writing a part of the Bible as an apostle. We have the benefit of a completed canon, that is, the collection of the books of the New Testament and the Old Testament. Now, one thing we need to, to note, that the authority of Scripture because it comes from the hand of God, is not dependent upon our recognition of its authority. Now, we often talk about the necessity of the work of the Holy Spirit to enable us to believe, to enable us to understand the word of God rightly. We, talk of, we pray that the Holy Spirit would enlighten our minds, that he would illuminate our minds so that we can understand rightly. And so this is not a denial of that necessity, that work of the Holy Spirit in us, but the authority of Scripture is not dependent upon our recognition of its authority. It is what it is. It is the Word of God, whether we believe it or not. Just like God doesn't go out of existence because there are atheists in the world. He exists whether they 
believe it or like it or not. So the scriptures are more fully confirmed than even Peter's wonderful experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. Isn't that amazing? You think about that? That we are more blessed in this regard that we have the word of God right here in the pews along with the hymnal. We have that. Scripture is a shining lamp as well. In other words, uh, the Apostle Peter tells us a little bit about how the Word of God works, what it does. It's a shining lamp in a dark place. Picking up, no doubt, upon Psalm 119, which says that your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God's word, you see, as a shining lamp in a dark place, enlightens our minds. It's how the Holy Spirit enlightens our minds. He enlightens it with the word of God, which he inspired the men to write. You often hear, well, you know, uh, people will, will say, well, if, if you, uh, you, you've figured it all out, so you're putting God in a box. I say, no. To say that the Holy Spirit is tied to the word is simply to recognize that he is the source of the word, and it is the word that he uses to cause us to grow. At first, it's the word that he uses to bring us to faith in Christ in the first place, and then it's what he uses to bring us to maturity, to the full measure of the stature, stature, not statue, stature of Christ. So God's word enlightens our mind, and by it we see God, we see ourselves, and we see the world as they really are, as we are. God's word reveals to us that we are sinners in need of salvation, and that Jesus is the Savior to save us from the drastic results of sin. So God's word is a shining lamp. Uh, St. Augustine, who we learned a little bit about in Sunday school, said that in your light or by your light, that is God's light, we see light. Much like the sun. The sun is a source of light, but it is also the means by which we see the world around us and one another. As the psalmist has said, your word, O God, is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. That means that if we don't have God's word, we are walking around and stumbling in the dark. That's a fact. Scripture, the apostle Peter tells us, was not produced by the will of man. Scripture has its origins, its source, in the will of God. And God used men to write down the words that he wanted to be written. That doesn't mean that those men who are what we would call contingent instruments, that is, they, they are uh, <clears throat> chosen by God to do his will, 
God did not have to do it this way, but he chose to do it this way. God used men to write his word so that what is produced is exactly what he wanted to be said. Now, in the last couple of hundred years, the humanity of the scriptures, that is, the uh, the reality that God has used men to write the Bible has uh, taken, uh, often taken center stage. And we do need to note the humanity of the Bible. For instance, uh, if you know your Bible, you can often, dis- when you hear Paul being read, you recognize Paul. When you hear Isaiah being read, you recognize Isaiah. If you know John, you, you recognize when John is being read. You recognize Daniel or Ezekiel or the book of Revelation. All these things, there are unique facets. There are characteristics. There are traits to each of the authors that God intended to come out in, the, in each of the books so that we can recognize Paul or Isaiah or John or Luke, or Moses, right? We recognize them. However, in recognizing this, we must remember that God is the primary author of Scripture. God is the primary author. It is what God means that matters. It's what God intends to convey by his word. And remember, that's important to remember. That's, I just did that twice. I apologize. It's redundant. Remember to remember to remember. Okay, that that, uh, that uh, the, the word of God is more important than even uh, Peter's wonderful experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. So God's intention in speaking his word is foremost not what we think the human author might have meant. It's what God means. Now you may be wondering, why am I going into all this elaboration? Well, because in the history of the church, we have stumbled at these points. God used human beings to write the Bible But God is not limited by the finitude of a human author. God's word transcends the limitations. And we know that because we know that the word of God is without error. It's infallible. It's inerrant. There's no other human book that has that quality. So the word of God was not produced by the will of men, It was produced by men carried along by the Holy Spirit. And that's why this passage that we are looking upon uh, is often turned to when we're considering the nature of God's word. What is it? How does it work? How did it come about? We, We sometimes look at Paul's letter to Timothy, where he says, you know, Scripture, all Scripture is inspired, and uh, therefore useful 
for reproof, rebuke, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. That's a good place to go, but we also go here. Human authors were involved in the production of scripture. No, duh. It's the Apostle Peter, after all, who is writing this very letter, right? Human authors are involved, but they were carried along by the Holy Spirit in the way the wind carries a boat along on the water by filling the sail and propelling it forward. That's what Peter is envisioning in his language, that men are carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, they are not out of their minds. They're not irrational. That's, that's the secular world's understanding of when somebody says they're inspired. I mean, they, they, they lose all uh, use of their faculties. That's, that's not what is happening. That's why I said earlier that God intended for Paul to be the way he was and it would come through in his writings. God intended John to be the way that he was, that Luke was the way that he was, that Mark was the way that he was, that Peter was the way that he was, that Isaiah was the way that he was, that Amos was the way that he was. Amos sticks out because he's an uneducated prophet who is not a prophet, nor the son of a prophet, and maybe didn't make a prophet. That's a joke. It's okay. It's I'm, I'm never good with timing in particular, you know, in that kind of thing. So Peter is telling us that uh, men are used in the writing of God's word, but the significance of God's word cannot be reduced to what men, the men think they're doing. It's important to note this. Not to divorce the human understanding of the, like Paul's understanding of what he's writing in Romans from what God intends to communicate. But it's simply noting that when we read the Bible, we're reading it and in the whole. In other words, when I read Paul, I've got Isaiah and John and, and Luke in the back of my mind. And when these different aspects of God's word come together, they give us a wisdom that far, far exceeds what one would expect from mere human authors. You see, uh, we can't slice and dice the Bible and say, well, this part is human and this part is divine, which would be another way of saying, I don't like this part, I can ignore it. This part I like, I'll obey it. And that's how many would understand how the divine and human author, authors work together. We can slice and dice. Uh, Paul talks about the role of women in the church. Uh, he's a chauvinist. He's wrong. We can ignore him. Uh, no. We first have to understand what he's actually saying, and it may be that he's been misinterpreted in places and at times, and so we don't want to assume uh, that he's been properly interpreted necessarily, uh, but he is an apostle. He is a divinely appointed spokesman of the living Lord Jesus Christ. And what he says 
has as much authority as what Jesus said. (gasps) I thought I might have heard the wind getting sucked out of the room. That's why you'll never find me using a red-letter Bible. Because the words of Jesus, heresy, have no more authority than the words of Paul. That's the reverse uh, logic. All of Scripture is inspired by God. All of Scripture, even the black letters, okay, all of Scripture is inspired by God. And as Peter says, it is better than his own wonderful experience. I keep going back to that. It's better than his own experience. The human words of the Bible, and that's what we have, are at the same time God's word. So you can't slice and dice. You can't separate what Paul said from what God intended Paul to say. Sometimes you'll read a commentary or maybe you've heard a preacher or a teacher say, well, I think this is what Paul should have said. No, that's not what I'm called to do. I'm called to to proclaim to you what God said through Paul, through John, through Isaiah, through all the writers of Scripture. It's not up to us to say, well, I wish he had said one thing and not this. That's not how it works. The human words are at one and the same time God's word. What Scripture says, God says. At the end of the day, beloved, the heart of Scripture, the heart of the matter... You may have heard it said that the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. The main thing of Scripture is the Lord Jesus Christ in all his glory and splendor. And that's the point of Luke 24 in that account with the uh, distraught disciples on the road to Emmaus. Uh, Those disciples who were overwhelmed and discouraged by the recent events in Jesus informing them that really they should know better. They should have known that this was going to happen because the Bible told them. See, they had the Bible. They had God's word, not in the way that we do, in a nice format of a book, but they did have it. So the heart of Scripture is the Lord Jesus Christ in all his glory and splendor. And the truth of Scripture is guaranteed by our true God. To put it another way, any slander of the word of God is a slander of God himself. It's a slander of God himself. And in conclusion, beloved... And you're thinking, oh, finally, conclusion. The Reformation that we've been celebrating over the past week, when some were, like myself, enjoying candy corn and other sorts of things, uh, Wednesday or Thursday, sorry. Uh, Well, some of us might have not been enjoying the power outage, but uh, there was trick-or-treating going on. Some of us were thankful to the Lord that the Reformation had occurred. There are some churches, by the way, that have a Reformation uh, celebration, like our, our brothers and sisters in Carlisle 
uh, last week had had a, a special service. Nice thing to do. The Reformation returned the church to the Word of God. That's what it, one of the things it did. Not the only thing it did, but certainly one of the things it did. The Reformation returned the church to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Beloved, the Reformation has bequeathed to us a gift that we must never lose, squander, give up, neglect, or sell for a mess of a bowl of stew. I'm thinking, where did that come from? Well, you know the story in the Old Testament. The one brother tricks the other brother into giving away his birthright for a bowl of stew. Yes, Jacob and Esau. The formal principle of the Reformation is that Scripture alone is the ultimate standard for godly doctrine and living. Yes, we can learn from history. We can learn from good and bad examples. We have both in the history of the church and in the history of the world. We also can learn from secular history. But it is the word of God that is the ultimate standard, the only infallible and inerrant standard for both doctrine and life. Or as the larger and shorter catechism put it, what we are to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. And that reminds me, I didn't mention it, but next week we will begin a new study in Sunday school on how to read and apply, understand and apply the Bible. How to read it uh, rightly, there is a right way and there's a wrong, many wrong ways, but there is a right way that God by grace has shown us, namely Luke 24, but I don't want to give away the store all at once, but you get the idea. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that you have given us the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, and that you have given us your Son clothed in the gospel. It is if your son was not laid in a manger, in a bed of straw, but he was laid in a bed of scripture. Help us, Lord, by your Holy Spirit to study your word, which is more sure than even the personal experiences of the Apostle Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration. We pray that you would help us to understand your word and to walk in its light, recognizing that by grace, through faith in Christ, your Holy Spirit will enable us to do just that. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.